welcome back to another episode of the Delaware National Guard podcast. Today we are bringing you another episode from the Delaware Air National Guard's 75th anniversary that was celebrated in September of 2021. This series focuses on airmen from the Delaware Air National Guard and revolve around the topic of heritage and proud traditions of family members that have served in the armed forces for generations. I am very proud and excited to have in the recording studio with me, retired Colonel Ken Wiggins. So just as with our conversation with Brigadier General Talbert, neither of you need an introduction with the Delaware Guard family. But for our listeners, Colonel Wiggins, could you please give us a brief introduction? My name is Ken Wiggins. I'm a retired uh, active duty colonel, uh, although the unit gave me an honorary promotion when I retired to a brigadier. Uh, my, my last assignment was in the Pentagon uh, at Headquarters Air Force, where I was the uh, Air National Guard liaison, and I was also the uh, Vice Chief of Air Force Training and Requirements, which is a fancy way of saying I went to budget meetings and fought for our piece of the pie all the time in the Pentagon. Reading over your biography, I see that you enlisted in February of 1966 only a mere 20 years after the initial formation of the Delaware Air Guard. Could you paint us a picture of what it was like to serve at that time? Sure. Well, uh, for starters, I, I was in college and I flunked out after my, I don't know, second or third semester. Uh, for all you late bloomers out there. Um, anyway, uh, I, I managed to get back in, but I was going to be drafted and uh, I didn't want to go in the Army. Um, my, my whole family was uh, Air Force, so the first thing I did was I talked to an Air Force recruiter and um, uh, in the meantime, uh, I, I think an uncle or my dad or somebody suggested I check with the guard, the Air Guard, and I guess I had heard at that time that uh, there weren't very many vacancies, but I, I gave it a try. Uh, my recruiter was uh, Bob LaFell, who was one of the charter members. And uh, it turns out there were some openings and uh, I, I took the tests and I was able to get in, which really disappointed my Air Force recruiter. He was really annoyed with me that I had wasted his time, but uh, I was able to get in the unit. And I remember to uh, Captain Luke Irwin at the time he was in personnel. And he said, we have four openings. We have uh, Recip Aircraft Mechanic, Recip Aircraft Mechanic, Recip Aircraft Mechanic, and Recip Aircraft Mechanic. And I said, I want to be a Recip Aircraft Mechanic, even though uh, really, I have no uh, talent for that kind of work. I'm not, <laughs> that was my lowest score in the qualifying uh, test, the, uh, the mechanical score, but uh, it, was, it was good enough to, to get in. And uh, so I went off to school uh, down at Shepherd Air Force Base. To, uh, I, went to, um, I went to basic training at uh, Amarillo, actually. Uh, Lackland was closed. There was a meningitis scare. Uh, I took my uh, aircraft uh, mechanic training at, at Shepherd and came home and I'm an aircraft mechanic and uh, worked in the engine shop uh, uh, in organizational maintenance as my first assignment. Um, the culture then, uh, you asked about the culture. Um, uh, what can I say? Uh, the, uh, it, it was sort of dominated by all the, all the supervisors, all the leadership of the Guard at that time. They were all World War II veterans, uh, Korean War veterans. Uh, they, were, they were a lot of old hands. They were all my dad's generation. and. Uh, so uh, my uncles were, were in the unit at that time. And so, uh, you know, it felt like a little bit of a family atmosphere to me, uh, just, just coming in. Um, you know, but you, you had drill one weekend a month. Uh, you had uh, camp uh, two weeks a year. Uh, as, as a mechanic in the engine shop, I remember as a young en enlisted guy, um, they didn't trust me with too much. You know, I, I cleaned spark plugs. I swept floors uh, during uh, summer camp. Uh, I, I took on a task like changing out a magneto on an engine on the flight line, which was a kind of a big deal for me. But, uh, uh, you know, they didn't trust you to monkey around too much with the stuff. The full timers really kept a sharp eye on part timers like me. And so um, I guess if I have any sort of fault with the unit and it's really not anybody's fault, I, I kind of don't blame them. But the. Um, I didn't really get the training, the follow-on training that I maybe would have liked because uh, they, they just didn't want to hand it off to a, a rookie, you know, to a, a new guy. They, you know, it's flying safety and all that, and uh, they, didn't, they didn't really trust me, probably with good reason. So I'm reading here that you also had a break in service, and then you came back and served as a graphic artist and an illustrator with Public Affairs. Sure. 
Could you tell our listeners what made you re-enlist? Yeah, I can tell you very easily. I, uh, I, I worked at, my civilian job was in advertising. I worked at an ad agency and we hired a new copywriter. Her name was Jerry Hutchinson. And uh, she was the wife of the new air commander, Bill Hutchison. And uh, so we had a, I was at, by then I was out of the unit. Uh, I went to a Christmas party and here's Colonel Hutchison and I'm allowed to call him Bill because I'm a civilian now. And, and uh, uh, he's the new commander. And uh, he had some projects out here on the base. He wanted some signs done. He wanted to improve morale and all that. And so um, he talked me into uh, trying to, you know, make some signs for him because I was an art director. And uh, so I did. And uh, then he started working on me about getting back into the unit. And uh, well, I had a baby on the way and uh, I really wasn't ready to commit, but I, I, I kind of reluctantly said, OK, I'll come back in, but just for one year. And it's only because I need the money, you know. Uh, I, I really had, uh, you know, I, I didn't really want to come back, but I, I did. And um, it was entirely a, a different experience. Uh, I, I was not cut out to be a mechanic, but I, but, but doing uh, signs and, and being in the public affairs shop, I, I was a photographer, I was a writer, uh, I, I drew cartoons and that kind of stuff. That was right down my alley. I loved every minute of it, and I just stayed. And uh, so uh, I, uh, it was 1971, 72 era. And uh, I'm coming in the door just about as everybody else is going out the door because the war is winding down and, and people's uh, enlistments are up. And what had been the public affairs shop uh, back then uh, had four or five people. It's sort of one guy left and another guy left. And every time somebody left, I inherited their job. And so I, I did the layout, I did the writing, I did the photography, I did everything. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how it was. And, and I really loved it. Uh, I, by the way, I love airplanes. I like to travel, and it was a great opportunity to do that. I, I went on every trip I could get on, and uh, so uh, uh, I, I started to crank a lot of uh, mandates, you know, extra mandates to the point where people started to complain, you know, uh, with, uh, about me breaking the budget, I guess. And uh, but it was a great time. You know, I was like a one-man band and uh, having a lot of fun. And uh, I did the. Uh, the Dang Truth, the monthly newsletter, and we, I think we won uh, the top in the nation something like four years out of five. Uh, you know, we were, we were the number one uh, newspaper in the, in, the, in the Air Guard system. So it was, it was a good time. It was a lot of, really a great time. Being a photographer and videographer myself, I know that workflow has changed so much and we're in the digital age now and everything is very easy to produce. But back then there was going through darkroom processing oh yeah turnaround what was the expectation back then for you as a public affairs officer well um you know my my main task was to produce the uh, the dang truth the monthly newsletter and I, I did the layout i did it was all uh paced up you know it, it wasn't digital at all um i took my own pictures and i developed my own film and printed the uh, you know the prints and all that kind of stuff and so uh, I had a lot of help uh, the, the group secretary uh, for a, uh, Colonel Hutchison at that time did uh, typed up uh, my my stuff in in a, a, a copy ready form uh, another guy Sergeant Goldstein took care of the printing he got the he took care of the printing after I delivered the uh, the paste up um, I would go to Back then, I think uh, on the Tuesday night before drill, there would always be a staff meeting. So I would always attend the staff meetings um, on Tuesday nights to understand what's going on that coming weekend. Um, so I put in a lot of extra time. And uh, I remember uh, a big issue back then was I had a, a manual typewriter and I was angling to get a, an electric typewriter. And that, that took about two years to get the okay and get the money for an electric typewriter, which was at that time a huge victory, you know, just, to, uh, we had no money. We, um, actually, I think, uh, my civilian employer at the time, uh, made a huge contribution to the success of, of the, uh, the paper and, and my job being that I, I, I used their telephone and their fax machine and their, their equipment, you know, <laughs> and supplies a lot, you know, just in order to get the job done. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was kind of like that all. Um, the, um, I finally, uh, my, my um, the, uh, Colonel Hutchison came to me after one of these staff meetings and he said, um, he said, Wiggins, I want you to apply for a commission. And um, actually I had been to that 
And there were there was only uh, one opening for I think a supply guy or something like that. And uh, I said, uh, well, there's there's no openings. He says, yes, there is. I want you to go check it out. So uh, I, I we had a, a grease pencil Manning document in the headquarters building. And so drill weekend, I went down to take a look. And sure enough, he had my name sort of penciled in as the uh, public affairs officer. Well, we already had a public affairs officer. He was my boss, uh, Bob Hotchkiss. And so I went to Bob and I said, hey, Bob, do you know anything about this? And he said, no. So we both looked, went back down to take another look. And then Hotchkiss's name was penciled in somewhere else as the new uh, support group com- commander. So evidently Hutchison had all this planned and 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 had it all mapped out, but uh, didn't bother to tell anybody. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I... I I competed for and got a, a slot as a as a, the public affairs officer. I think it was in '78. I went off to uh, AMS to uh, commissioning school and came back as the public affairs officer. And that at that time, this is a little out of the ordinary. And for transparency's sake, before I go into my next question, I've added this comment in post production. There was a technical glitch that we didn't catch during our live recording as this was our first podcast recording ever. And I didn't want to delete this part of our discussion because it's so important to the heritage theme of the 75th anniversary and also Colonel Wiggins' story. So this is a heritage series and it wouldn't be a heritage series without a discussion of your family's affiliation with military service. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your family's story? Sure. Uh, I'm I'm fourth generation. My great grandfather was in the Army National Guard in World War One. Uh, my grandfather uh, was in the Guard uh, just before World War Two, uh, and he was also in a thing called the Delaware State Guard during World War Two, because he was too old to serve overseas. And Dad was a charter member of the unit along with my uh, uncle Lawrence, and my uncle Eugene joined just a year or two after that. So they're all uncles and dads and all, all that sort of thing. And then I had a whole uh, a handful of cousins as well. Uh, one notable cousin is Deputy, General Deputy, who just recently retired, is my first cousin on my mom's side. Um, uh, and then I, I know, uh, my, my cousin Larry uh, was a member along with his wife, Dottie. Uh, and then uh, trying to remember, uh, there was... Uh, you know, anyway, it's just, it's always been a family deal and uh, we've always kind of uh, talked about it across the generations and so on. And that's, that's something we all seem to have in common. Unfortunately, my son did not join. I couldn't talk about it and uh, he's, he's almost 50 years old now, so he's not likely to join at this point, but I am talking to my grandson. So we'll see about that. When you were serving as the chief of personnel management, I see that you implemented ROPMA The acronym is R-O-P-M-A. I'm not familiar with that term offhand. Could you tell our listeners about that and what it means to our Guard members? RATMA was a a congressional uh, ROPA, is the active duty version of RATMA, which is the Reserve Officer Personnel Act, I think. It was was passed by Congress, and it was a reform. And so there there was a, a reserve version of that. And um, uh, when I was serving in the uh, Air National Guard uh, uh, personnel directorate down at uh, Andrews, uh, I was tasked with implementing RATMA in the uh, Air National Guard. And so uh, I had to become the expert on that particular program. And one of the things I did was uh, I went around the country with another guy and we gave briefings, you know, virtually almost every state. We didn't go to every state. We'd we'd do regional briefings. But uh, I came here to Delaware and and gave the briefing and... uh, uh, you know, uh, but uh, and I wrote the handbook at the time on, you know, basically it's it's the things you need to be successful as an officer. It's the Air Force tells you what you need to do. You need to do these schools. You need to do these kinds of assignments. Uh, you need this kind of experience in education. And it just sort of lays it out for you. And uh, if you follow that roadmap, uh, uh, you'll you'll probably do well. Um, but uh, not everybody follows the roadmap, you know, so. Especially on PME, you know, a lot of people uh, drive feet on that and uh, it hurts their career if they don't. Reading further into your career, and now I'm curious, I'm seeing that you spent a 30-month assignment as a speechwriter for Lieutenant General Russell Davis. What was that experience like? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, the, the, I was personnel at uh, Andrews at the Readiness Center 
uh, uh, in personnel. And uh, I was approached by a guy named Rich Burris, who was the, uh, he was the chief of staff for General Baca, who was the, at that time the chief of the National Guard Bureau. And Rich uh, said, I, I need you to come over here and, and talk to me. And uh, I didn't know what it was about, but uh, this was on a Thursday or Friday. And he said, uh, you have a, a, a pretty good reputation as a writer. We need a speechwriter for General Baca. He's on board here two years and he's on his 11th or 12th speechwriter and you're next in line. And I'm thinking, oh, gee, I'm going to do this for about six weeks. I'll probably get fired like everybody else. And uh, so I went over there. I, that weekend, I went to the library and got out a half a dozen books on speechwriting and tried to get real smart on speechwriting because I had never written one in my life. And uh, so I went to work for General Baca. He was a three-star Army uh, chief of the Bureau. And um, I guess we sort of hit it off. I got on his wavelength and uh, he, he liked me. I stayed with him as his speechwriter for the rest of his term. You know, I traveled with him all the time. And uh, by the way, I, I had to report over there on a Monday morning and my life just got completely turned upside down. All of a sudden I've got a 20 mile commute across DC to the Pentagon, which, you know, I, I, I lived only about a one stoplight and one, one stop sign from Andrews. And now I have to go through all the Washington traffic and all that. It was, it was a pretty excited, a very demanding kind of a fellow, and, uh, uh, but, uh, but it was very uh, fulfilling. So I, I did that job for General Baca until he retired. And then I stayed on in what's called the joint staff there. Uh, and I worked for General Davis. Uh, initially as a speechwriter, I was a strategic planner. We had a cell with about three or four colonels and our job was to look at the future of the National Guard and try to figure out where we're going and try to be a uh, sort of incubator for new ideas. And uh, that, was, that was really a fun and fulfilling job. The hot issue was uh, Homeland Defense. And so uh, the Guard wasn't sure where, you know, what what its role was, we stood. And so, uh, you know, me and uh, another couple of folks, the Strategic Initiatives Group, by the way, is the name of it, <laughs> I just remember. We tried to help form the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, how the, how the Guard would approach this, this problem. And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, wrestling matches between the active army and the, uh, and the and the guard over over roles and missions, um, the army thought that uh, in a in a difficult situation they would call out the guard, but then the active army would take control and be the leadership force. The guard sort of argued, no, it's it's our people. We're gonna we're gonna do our own leadership. So there were those kinds of turf battles. There were also turf battles over uh, the use of posse comitatus and some of the things about when do you employ the guard that's still applicable today down on the border, for example. When do guardsmen you know, actually pick up arms and you know, how do they work with civilian police? How do they work with military? And so uh, we were just wrestling with all those kinds of issues. Part of the job was uh, we did uh, sort of war games. Uh, we hired a contractor and we, we did uh, future studies. What's the National Guard going to look like in 20 years? And by the way, it is 20 years later. It didn't turn out the way we thought, but that's okay. Things are always going to change when you're trying to, you know, guess the future. What a, what a terrific job. It was uh, really an exciting place to be and uh, right at the center of, you know, right, right with the chief. My office was next to his office. And so I had his confidence and it was a great time. Great time. You know. This leads me into my next question. Being such an accomplished writer, photographer, and an overall documentarian. I'm thumbing through your book, Images of America, Delaware Air National Guard. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this book and its content? Well, uh, for starters, uh, how did it come to be? Uh, they say, uh, I originally, I, when I first retired, a, a month after I retired, my wife came home and said uh, she had seen something on the bulletin board about they were writing a history of the city of Newark, which is my hometown, and they were going to form a committee. So I went to this meeting and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we had people who said, uh, well, I'll do the history of the fire department. And another one said, I'd like to do the history of the churches. And so naturally I did the history of the military in Newark, which wasn't, there isn't much, but you know, I didn't, it, it was just a fun exercise to be part of that team. And so I got the writing bug and uh, they say, write about what you know. And of course I know a lot about the air, Delaware Air National Guard. And uh, so that was my first book, uh, a solo book project. I had access to uh, lots and lots of images because uh, at that time I was also uh, beginning my uh, work at the Delaware Military Museum, which is where a lot of these uh, uh, reside. And so um, 
Those uh, images of America, they're sort of formula thing. Uh, you're not allowed to write a whole lot. You just write extended captions for, you know, lots of pictures. And uh, so it was a kind of a good beginner's book, great, great place to start. And so that's how it came to be. Um, of course, once I did that, well, now that I've done the uh, Air Guard, I guess I should do the Army Guard. And so I did the Army Guard book as well. And uh, so then you know, for a follow-up project. So then I did one on Dover Air Force Base and it just sort of rolled like that. I, I became a guy for a local military history with sort of the niche that I found and that I've been mining ever since. And uh, so I've done a whole, whole bunch of books, but th those were my starters and uh, they were a lot of fun. Of course, I had already worked on the, um, the 40th anniversary yearbook. I think I worked on the 60th anniversary yearbook. I didn't do the 50th because I was on active duty at the time, but with uh, the history of the Delaware Air Guard ever since, um, I'm kind of a self-appointed uh, the, the historian for the Delaware Guard. At the museum, we, we keep all the, not only uh, images, photographs and so on, but we've got orders and documents, you know, uh, rosters, uh, uh, back copies of the dang truth. Uh, we've got all kinds of, uh, of uh, documentation over there if you're interested in doing any research on, on the Delaware Air National Guard. So I spent over six years in the Delaware Army National Guard Public Affairs Detachment, and our office was over at the old Stark headquarters. Mm -hmm. And I saw what I would say is an evolution of the Delaware Military Museum. Could you tell us a little bit about that in a little more detail? and uh, what hand you had in its development? Sure. Um, well, uh, Bill Duncan, General Bill Duncan, Major General, uh, he was with the, he, he was the commander of the 61st uh, down, down state, I guess, um, approached me right after I retired and asked me to become the executive director for the museum. And this was in, uh, I think, 2005. There was, uh, it wasn't a museum at that time an organization that's still called the Delaware Military Heritage and Education Foundation. As executive director, uh, our, our task was, we were trying to raise money at that time to build a museum down in Delaware City at Fort DuPont. We had uh, the old gymnasium uh, PX was the building that looked like was gonna be our museum. It was a nice size, it's sort of the size of, of a CVS or a, you know, a drugstore. And it had a lot of possibilities, but uh, it was going to be about a $3 million problem to renovate it. And uh, over the years, that became a 5 to a $7 million problem. It just got more and more expensive as we looked at the construction details. And this is at a time when the economy was starting to slide south uh, after the recession in 2008. So we were we just couldn't raise that kind of money and so um we ended up moving our our museum from that building to another smaller building at fort dupont and uh we we had we were, we were looking for a home and uh it was general vavila who finally arranged for us to go over to the um the old state headquarters at uh, laura little school and that's where we are now and i think we moved over there our stuff had been stored at the Newport Armory, but we moved over there in 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. We, we began to build out exhibits and we're still building them. I'm, I'm working on a World War II exhibit right now. And uh, so we're not done. We still have a Civil War room to do. And so, you know, we've got lots of things on our list, but we've completed a lot. And um, in fact, we, we built a, a, a sort of a temporary 75th anniversary for the Air Guard exhibit over there, which we will be bringing out to the base uh, in, during September drill, bring a lot of that out here for, uh, for the uh, celebration of the 75th anniversary. I was the executive director for a few years. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember what the circumstances were. Um, I, I, I just didn't want to do that anymore. So I became a board member and I became the curator and this is on a volunteer basis. Part of the reason was we were almost out of money. We were just broke and we couldn't afford to hire an executive director anymore. Not that it paid very much, but so uh, all our folks now are volunteers, every one of them. So I act as curator. I'm responsible for the exhibits and for the historical artifacts and so on that are in the museum. My specialty, as it were, what I really like to do is just focus on being an archivist. I like, I like to deal with uh, documents and papers and photographs. And we do have, we've got lots of volunteers who do lots of different things. Uh, you know, we've got folks who sort of specialize in textiles. We've got a great uh, uniform collection. We have other folks who specialize in artifacts and other folks who sort of specialize in books. We've got a huge, we've got the best uh, military library in the East Coast there. There's a lot going on there. It's a lot of fun and it keeps me busy. 
What's been one of your favorite projects that you've worked on there? With the museum, uh, a favorite project. Well, one of them, one of the, <clears throat> the very first ones was uh, in 2017. We were celebrating the uh, centennial of World War One, and so that was one of our first major exhibits. We built an exhibit around World War One. Uh, so we collected a lot of meal, uh, and we still have a lot of it. I don't know um, if you remember, at one time there were these uh, big paintings uh, done by uh, Brandywine School artists that hung in the, uh, I remember. the Laura Little School. When uh, the uh, uh, Biden uh, Readiness Center opened, those paintings came over here, and for a while they were hanging, I think, in various colonels and generals' offices. Not really a good place for them because they don't get into public view, and so... We had a discussion, they are gonna revert back to the museum and we're gonna put them on public view there. But right now they're actually temporarily on view down at the uh, State Archives in Dover. Once they leave there, they'll be coming back to us at the museum. And so they're really fabulous pigs, uh, Frank Schoonover and Gail Hoskins and uh, some other famous, uh, really great artists. And they're, they're, they're magnificent paintings. And uh, so I, I enjoy the artwork too, you know. If you had to summarize how the Delaware Air National Guard changed your life's trajectory, what would you say? Well, um, I think as I mentioned before, my in my early career, my, I was in advertising. Uh, I was an art director. Uh, I, I was an art major. That was a lot of fun. You're around creative people. You're doing a different kind of project almost every day. It, it's, it's just really interesting work. Creative people are fun people to be around. It was fulfilling in lots of ways, but... Uh, it never felt very important to me. It always felt like a kind of a frivolous way to spend my time. And uh, when I came to drill, when I when I came here uh, to work, it, it felt important. felt It felt uh, it, it felt fulfilling somehow. You know, that's that's one of the drivers in my life. Uh, that, that that's uh, kind of why I went on. I, my career is upside down. You know, I was a part timer for almost 20 years, and then I went full time for almost 20 years. So. The exact opposite of what most people do. To me, uh, it felt important. It felt good to do this. I, I felt like I was making a real contribution for something that really mattered. And so that's that's kind of the overall encompassing way I think about it. By the same token, career, my career has been very uh, rewarding for me. You know, the uh, I, I've advanced. Uh, I got a lot of education over the years, a lot of training. I had a lot of fun. I, I got to travel. I got to uh, be around airplanes. I got to be around you know, dedicated people. It's all good. I loved my career. I never had a bad day. I never had a bad assignment. I, just, I liked every minute of it, you know, and I know that's not true of everybody. You know, people can have a bad uh, boss or a bad experience, but uh, that actually almost never happened to me. Um, I, I just enjoyed every minute of it. Now that I've been retired, I've been retired for, um, uh, gee, I hate to think of it. Um, 18, 17 years now. Uh, I can't believe it. it. Doesn't seem like that. I still dream about my job, you know, <laughs> and my, being in boots. And uh, it, uh, the retirement benefits are terrific. I get the medical and the retirement, and uh, you know, I'm, I have no worries, no concerns. Uh, everything's taken care of. How about deployments or missions? Are there any interesting, and I'm sure there are, stories that you could share with us today? Yeah, I saw that question when you. Did the, you know, I thought, well, gee, that's an almost impossible question because I had a lot of good times. Um, uh, back in the day when I was with the unit, I guess mid-70s to the mid-80s, uh, we were doing a lot of uh, what was called Volan Oak missions back then, deploying to Panama. So I went to Panama a lot. I, you know, go on a two-week rotation down there almost every year. From Panama, we would fly missions uh, all over Central and South America. And so there was always something interesting. As a public affairs officer, um, I took local media on some of those deployments. And so I was privileged. I got to go uh, like into, up, up in the control room in the, in the Panama Canal lock. There's a miniature um, in the control room. They have a miniature version of the locks that you see down below. And uh, when you turn this little knob and open that gate on the little model up here, the big one down there opens that's 90 feet wide. It's just really amazing. Those are all the original controls that were installed in like 1914 or whenever the canal was built. And it still all works. So it, it was a lot of fun to do stuff like that, to uh, get get to the inside. And I mean, I met with, I don't know, I think I met governor of uh, the, back then it was the canal territory, the Panama Canal territory when, when President Carter gave it back to the Panamanians. And so I was there on both sides of that uh of that issue and got to see the differences between uh, our 
the canal zone when it was ours and the canal zone when it became Panamanian. And I got to travel all, to every, almost every Central American country and, and a lot of South American countries. Just just one of many. I mean, I, I, I used to go to the Azores a lot. Uh, we, we would always gas up there on our way to Europe. And uh, I enjoyed going to Germany and Greece and Turkey and all places. It was just, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. You know, the flying, the traveling. And I, although I was, I, I, my, of course, my dream, like a lot of kids, I wanted to be a pilot, but my eyes are bad. And so uh, I was uh, ruled out on, on that score, but I sure, I still liked airplanes and, and hanging around pilots and air crews and all that. And uh, when, whenever I traveled with the unit, the uh, crew always made me feel right at home. I felt like part of the crew. Uh, we all bunked together. We all went out to dinner together and those kinds of things. I remember I, my very first trip overseas, uh, we went to Torrejon, Spain, and we went into town to Madrid and uh, we dined at a place called Teens Restaurant, which is a famous restaurant in Madrid. It's where Hemingway ate, you know, and they had a roast suckling pig in the window and terrific food and wine. And those kinds of adventures are just, you know, just, just great, you know, just wonderful memories and uh, all good, you know. Uh, I think one time on a, uh, oh, one of my favorites actually, in, when, back in the days when we flew C-97s, when I was still enlisted, uh, we had a, a chap who retired from the unit, and he retired in the Azores at uh, Terciera near uh, Lodge's Air Force Base. And so whenever our crews went through there, they would all bring him tasty cakes and submarines and stuff you, you know you miss from home. And he uh, said that uh, in the local orphanage, uh, Christmas was coming and they didn't have any, anything for the orphans and asked if the uh, guard could maybe bring some used clothing and that kind of stuff. And the appeal came back here. I was at school at the time at Delaware. So I approached the uh, service sorority and the service fraternities, and I personally got a truckload of stuff, uh, used clothing, toys, Christmas decorations, all that, along with lots of other people. We loaded up, I think, two C-97s and flew them full to uh, Lages and then to this town called Terciera, which we gave to the orphans. We had so much stuff. We were able to give toys to every kid in town, not just the orphans, but everybody. And it was Operation Papa Noel. And we did that for maybe two, three years or something like that. It was a great, great thing. Uh, but then the State Department said, stepped in and said, uh, Delaware can't have its own foreign policy, uh, so you got to toe the line. We, we, we were not allowed to do that anymore, but um, for a little brief period there, it was just a wonderful thing to be uh, part of. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that. That was, that was a, a great thing to do. And, uh... So during your career, how did you see the guard change? How did it evolve? What were some of the positive changes that you saw in our organization? I, th I think most of it, uh, w once I went on the unit, I, I, you know, you did your job. Uh, I enjoyed my job. I, did, I tried to do the best I could uh, for the unit. Um, don't really, uh, you're, you're kind of close to the mission and you, you don't really uh, see uh, the big picture maybe. Uh, you're, you're engaged in, in, in getting the job done. And uh, I, back then, I was sort of an activist. I, I think I was uh, at that, even back then in the, um, uh, in the early 80s and so on, uh, you, you're supposed to put in uh, one, one weekend a month and two weeks a year, and that's, uh, th I think, 39 days a year. I was usually clocking 65, 65, 85 days a year because I just put in, I went on every deployment I could get on, you know, I, I just, I just enjoyed it. And at uh, that, that time that was pretty unusual. But when I went on active duty uh, down at the guard bureau, um, uh, I was uh, at the bureau in, uh, when the Gulf War broke out in uh, 1990, 91. Um, activity really ramped up and that, that part of my job was to attract some of that activity. And uh, so we had a lot of guardsmen who, you know, began to put in a lot of time, you know, uh, on average, the, uh, it went up from 39 days to, 60, 80, 80 days. And so I remember the leadership at the Bureau at that time, uh, there was a lot of concern. How, 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 how hard can we push these guys before it breaks? How, how, how much can we take on? You know, because the mission of the Guard historically had always been just training. Your job is and be ready for when you're activated for the big war, I guess, you know, but that never really happened. And what really happened was uh, gradually becoming more and more operational. And that goes all the way back to the even the 50s when we started to, to do um, alerts, uh, you know, for the Russian bombers that were going to attack us. And so 
the Air Guard was always a little than the Army Guard in that respect. We were more operational than they were, even though we were all supposed to be training, but we, we just did more operational stuff. Uh, as a personnel guy at that time, we, we kept wondering how far, when is this going to break? When are we going to start to lose people? You know, when is retention going to fall? And actually, retention either stayed steady or it actually improved a little bit. Now we were doing more and more taskers. And what I kind of figured out eventually is if you were in the Air Guard at that time and didn't like being deployed 60 or 90 days a year, then you probably got out. Uh, but you were replaced by somebody who probably liked that kind of thing and wanted to stay. And I think uh, the force just transformed itself over, over a period of time. And, um, uh, you know, you got your kind of uh, level of activity. Part of that you can chalk up to, uh, you know, what we used to call guard bums, uh, guys who were kind of doing jobs, so they're looking for some duty days. That might be part of it, but that's not really the whole answer. The, you know, somehow or other, uh, they're working it out with their families or their boss, and they're, they're making the time to come in here and, and serve. And uh, so that, that's the big change to me. This, this upward trend of, uh, what I, you know, operational uh, business of, of actually employing and, and deploying and, and doing the job. And uh, General Vavala, who was the former TAG, uh, I don't think he gets enough local recognition for what he did, but uh, uh, I was at the Bureau and I got to see when he was the he was the um, president of uh, the uh, Adjutant General's Association. He was the president of Nogus. And in those positions, he pushed and pushed real hard to get the um, uh, to get the guard recognized, to get a, you know, the fourth star for the chief, to get uh, to make us an operational force. And a lot of that, you know, he openly did that. He he pushed hard enough to make that happen, got Congress to pass the law to to make that happen. So that's the big change that I've seen in the Guard um, in my career is this move from just a training function to, uh, we still train, but much more of an operational force and, and one that's used every day. What are some of your observations of some of the new generations of Guardsmen that are serving today? Well, I've been retired for 17 years, so I don't really see too many young airmen, uh, uh, you know, up close and personal anymore. I meet folks like you, but uh, I really don't know, you know, <laughs> I don't see you all the time. So um, it's, it's hard to say, but I certainly have, uh, I just remember thinking that I had no, no worries, no concerns uh, when I retired, uh, that all the young folks that I saw coming in were as e easily as capable, easily, probably better educated better better suited uh, I think it just gets better all the time you know the, the dedication I see the resolve you know is, is still there and uh, I have no worries that the younger generation just ain't up to snuff anymore or can't do the job we used to do back in the old days actually if anything I think we were sort of a little bit lazier and a little bit more slapdash back in the old days than than today I, I think it's very much more professional on the diversity and inclusion landscape during your career, how did you see that improve? When I came into the unit in the engine shop, uh, the only uh, man of color in the unit was a guy named Mel Purcell. He was in the engine shop with me. He was a really nice fella. Um, I worked side by side with him, and um, uh, but he was the only one. Uh, on uh, on my trip to Spain, uh, one of the uh, one of the new guys was a guy named Ray Hale. He was the second man of color in the unit that I that I can remember. I think in in the uh, early 70s with the uh, all volunteer force when we eliminated the draft, that drove a lot of the, uh, a lot of changes. Uh, Linda Van Vechten, I believe, is the was the first enlisted uh, gal in the unit. I think she was an Aeromed, and that that unit was ultimately commanded by Carolyn Doolittle, who was our first female commander. Uh, so, uh, you know, there were a lot of women, but I do remember, uh, you know, being in aircraft maintenance, uh, we had a gal who was in the, uh, sort of back shop. She was, uh, an, an admin type. I can't remember her job exactly, but, um, and those guys are really pretty rough on her. You know, I think it was a really, a, a must've been a difficult test for her to, uh, to stay there and kind of endure some of the cat calls and insults and so on that, uh, she endured as a, as a young, as the only gal in, the, in, the, in it at that time. And so uh, it was a little bit of a rocky road that way. But uh, today, of course, it's, it's very commonplace uh, uh, minorities, um, uh, even to the point where um, uh, certainly uh, LGBT or you know, I can never remember all the initials, but, uh, you know, uh, we, got, we moved away from uh, don't, uh, don't ask, don't tell policies until, uh, you know, so 
We certainly had gay people in the unit even when I was young, but uh, and everybody sort of knew it. Nobody talked about it. Nobody uh, really bothered with it. It was just, you know, part of the deal, I guess. Uh, one of my favorite people is uh, Carol Timmons. Uh, I knew Carol when she came into the unit. She was our first female um, security policeman. She, she started as a security cop. And uh, she was right out of, uh, I don't know, high school or something like that. And uh, she's about, back then she was maybe 90 pounds dripping wet, you know, and uh, really a tiny little person. And, uh, but her determined, her is a great story. You know, she, uh, uh, she wanted to fly. The Air Force policy would not let women fly in time. So she went over to the Army side and got into Rotary Wing. At her very first opportunity, she came back to the Air Force and flew in New Jersey with the reserve unit, uh, flying, I think, C-141s. But she really wanted to come home to Delaware. And when changed its policy to allow women to fly C-130s, that's the first thing that happened. She came right back here. And of course, you know the rest of the story. She, uh, she was a fantastic uh, pilot, commander, leader. Uh, ultimately adjutant general, so uh, she's a personal hero to me, and uh, and I'm really uh, privileged to have known her. So yeah, there, there there have been lots of those kinds of changes over the years. It didn't happen all at once, and um, and there were I think there were bumps along the way. There probably still are. There probably still are of some kind. Obviously, we've made big progress. Uh, I'll, you know, this I probably shouldn't even say this, but uh, when I was at the bureau. I, I was in recruiting advertising was my first assignment down there. I was the chief of uh, air guard recruiting. And so we made uh, uh, public service announcements, uh, little uh, pre-recorded announcements that we send out to all the states. And then the states are supposed to tag them with their, their local logo and phone number. And uh, then they put them on air. And we, we did one on uh, diversity, one on, um, I think it had uh, had a whole series of people. You'd have a like a, a, a gal, and then her face would sort of uh, transform into a man's face, which would transform into an Asian-American, which would transform into uh, to an African-American, and so on. So this was our sort of diversity. It was kind of cleverly done, and I think it told the right message. But we got, uh, we got mail back from uh, some of the southern states that are going to use this down here. you know. And this is in like 1992, and I'm thinking, this is 1992, and you're still, you know, they, they, they knew they needed to recruit, but they didn't want to do it. They, they, ref, they refused to even use these tools that we provided them. You know, it's a sort of state thing. Um, you know, they can do what they like in the states, but uh, we're, we're there to service them. But, but uh, that, was, uh, that shocked me that, um, that they, that, you know, refused to, uh, to, to use these things. Progress takes time. It does. It does. So I see that you're retired living down in Elton, Maryland right now. What are some of the things that you're doing in your retirement? Any projects or hobbies? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm as busy as I've ever been. Uh, my, uh, my main uh, thing is a uh, curator at the museum that takes a, a, big, uh, a big part of my time. I'm still writing. I've got a couple book projects in the works. Uh, I'm, I'm also an artist, so uh, I paint. I just had a show in, uh, in Elkton uh, at the uh, local gallery down there. I did a bunch of skyscapes and stuff. I, uh, up until very recently, I was the uh, president of the uh, Board of Trustees for the uh, Cecil County Public Libraries. Uh, so I'm sort of active in, in my community um, in, in, that, in that regard. So all those things kind of keep me pretty busy. Uh, th th those are the ones that at the top of my head, but uh, I feel a little overcommitted sometimes. Uh, I, I don't have enough time, but uh, when I try to make some me time and find a couple of days for myself, I end up bored out of my skull. So I don't know. Just can't seem to make me happy, you know. <laughs> As a fellow artist, I'm the same way. I always have to be doing something. Yeah. So let's close with this, Ken. If I were a young person looking for a career and possibly the guard, what would you say to me about this organization based off of your experience? Uh, I just talked to one last night uh, at, at, a, at, a, at the gallery I was, I was at. A young lady um, had been, uh, I think, four years active duty in the Air Force and uh, left, uh, left uh, over a kind of a bad deal or something. I, I don't know the specifics, but she was an unhappy camper and, and left under duress. And, uh, She'd been, she's been out for about four, year, four or five years, and she kind of would like to get back in uniform, maybe, although she's grad school, and she's doing this, and she's doing that, and wouldn't know how to find the time. But anyway, my advice to her was, uh, uh, and this is probably for a press service, you know, in, in my career in, in 
large part of my career was in personnel. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people who are, I don't know, maybe 50 something years old who say, you know, I did a hitch and I thought about getting into the guard and I don't know, I never got around to it. And now I'm really sorry that I didn't, um, I've, I've lost that investment of six or eight years of active duty and it's got to go back. I, I can't recoup it. And uh, so uh, on, in practical terms, if you've got, uh, if, if you had a hitch in active duty, four years, six years, whatever, uh, that's an investment uh, in, and all you need to do is come back in and you can recoup that investment and cash in, you know, when, when you retire. So, uh, you know, for retirement purposes, that's, uh, you know, when you went to that age, midlife, I don't know, 40s or 50s, you, you start to think about the practicalities of what am I going to do in my old, you know. So, uh, you know, that, that's important. Uh, for, for truly young people, though, for people coming out of high school or, you know, just starting their lives, um, you know, my advice would be, uh, I, I know you've, you've seen movies, you've, you've seen TV programs, you've heard from friends or whatever, and, you know, there's a lot of trepidation about, well, I don't know if I could handle, endure basic training or, you know, are going to people be going to yelling and barking orders all the time? And I just try to set their mind at ease that it's not like that. It's very much like any other job, you know, uh, uh, you know, there are, there are, uh, there are, there's, there's lots of rewards. There's lot, you know, lots of fulfillment. There's, there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not all, you know, scream, people screaming and yelling in your face. I, that, it just seems to be the, uh, the mindset of so many young people. They think that that's what the military is about. And it's, it's, it's a false picture and, uh, it's just awful hard to overcome, I guess, with all the, you know, uh, movies and TV programs they see or wherever they get their advice. It's, uh, not always going to be like the intro to Full Metal Jacket, right? <laughs> yeah. And I know I said we were closing with that last question, but was there anything else that we didn't cover today that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, well, uh, I guess the most eventful thing that happened to me in my enlisted uh, year w term was uh, in the 1967 or 67 or 68, the, the race riots in Wilmington. That was... Uh, Probably my most extended period of uh, state duty. We were uh, we were called up, uh, and uh, we we all came out here to the base and sort of assembled. And it was kind of a cluster problem, you know, and <laughs> nobody knew it. Was. We got on uh, trucks and we rode into Wilmington on I-95, and you could the city burning. You could see the smoke. We all assembled there at the armory. At uh, at that time, it was at 10th and Dupont Streets, and it was all Army Guard and Air Guard. And, Gee, I, you know, I joined the Air Guard so I wouldn't have to wear a helmet and a canteen and carry a gun. And here I am wearing a helmet and canteen carrying a gun. And uh, they were M1 carbines at the time. And every once in a while, some captain would say, I need uh, 12 guys, you, 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 and you come with me. And they would go and guard a fire station or a power station or what have you. And I was with my friend Tommy Naylor, and we're kind of like lurking in the shadows a little bit. And, some guy comes along and he says, I need two guys, you know, and I look at Tommy and Tommy looks at me. So we decided to step forward. And so we volunteered and uh, it was uh, two captains uh, were driving, I guess. And then Tommy and I were in the back seat as uh, a shotgun, literally, you know, and uh, we were it was a chow wagon. We were going from place to place to deliver uh, hot meals. And it turned out to be great duty because I got to get all over the city and see what was going on. I wasn't just stuck in one spot. And so uh, I, I enjoyed that part of it, the mobility and, and getting getting to know what was happening. And um, I just remember uh, one incident where uh, there was a curfew. Um, and I think everybody had to be indoors by, you know, eight o'clock or something. And this is like midnight. And we're, we're at the corner where the Hotel DuPont is at uh, Market Street and um, 12, I guess it's 10th or 11th Street. And the light turns red and it's kind of stupid because we're dutifully waiting for the light to change, even though there is not a soul. It's like nobody home. And we're sitting there and a car pulls up next to us, a station wagon. And it, and it's full of, uh, you know, people from Wilmington, black people. There's a curfew. And so it's lock and load. What's going on? And this, uh, there was a woman who was going to labor. And so uh, we, you know, once we figured it out what was going on, we escorted them to the hospital. And uh, it was a kind of tense time at the time. Um, we were in the armory in uh, Wilmington, uh, the big uh, armory at 12th and uh, 10th and DuPont. And uh, that's, I guess that's part of uh, Little Italy, you know. 
We were in uh, bunks, you know, one after the other, uh, double-decker bunks. Yeah. And we got training on how to clean our weapons and that kind of stuff in the, in the daytime. And then we would do patrols at night. And we were there for weeks and weeks and weeks. I was there for, I think, a, about a month. And then I was detached down to Dover, to the Dover Armory for two weeks. And then I came back up to Wilmington for, you know, like another week. So it was like a month and a half, two, almost two months I was on, on, on duty the whole time. So it's confining, you know, you it's like you were in jail. You weren't allowed out because of the nature of the thing. Uh, after the second day, a smuggling operation started to go on and we were getting stuff over the wall, contraband and what have you. And I remember a, uh, a shaving cream fight broke out in the canteen. We had like a little BX where you could buy cigarettes and toothbrushes and that kind of stuff. And uh, somebody started the shaving. We were drinking beer and shaving cream. And uh, General Lee, Preston Lee came in. He was the army guy. He was a real tough guy. And man, he just blew up and <laughs> he confined us all to our bunks or something like that. It was like, you know, <laughs> it was an interesting time. And it was, it was um, you know, kind of historic, I guess, uh, in, in a sense. Uh, we were, Wilmington was the city that had been occupied longer than any other city in the country at the time or something like that. We were sort of famous for, you know, so guard got kind of a black eye over the whole thing in a way but it wasn't there you know we were we were there at the at the base of the governor at the time so the governor got unelected in that coming election so history is always being made and like we agreed earlier progress does take time doesn't it colonel wiggins it was our pleasure to have you join us today and we'd love to have you back again in the studio again in the future my pleasure too yeah i enjoyed it thank you very much i hope it hope it goes well don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel so you can always stay up to date with new content and share this online with your friends in the community. This is Staff Sergeant Paul Thorson of the 166 Airlift Wing Public Affairs Team, signing off.